Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. This weekend is Labor Day weekend. Uh, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us here today for our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. So if you plan on submitting a question live, please include the name of your HOA and condo and your current role when you submit your question. Okay, let's just do a very quick talk about the Arizona legislature closing and the five new bills pertaining to HOAs and condos in Arizona. Just a quick recap, it was the longest legislative session in history in 2023. It started January 9th, 2023, and didn't end until July 31st. There were five bills that were introduced and signed, passed by both houses, the House and the Senate um, in our Arizona legislature, and then signed by the governor. These laws are going to be going into effect at the end of October 2023. We have a great handout that we're going to be sharing with you that talks about these five bills. And as we get closer to the effective date at the end of October, we'll be talking more in depth about each of these bills. But always welcome to answer any questions about these five bills up until the time that they become law. Okay, let's just step right into the questions. Our first question is from a condominium. And it says, I moved into a condo last year. They modified the bylaws three years ago, but they did not provide a signed copy to each homeowner. Is signature and delivery required for these new bylaws to be in effect, or is only voting required? So great question. It sounds like you just moved into the condo last year, so you want to be careful about making statements about something that happened three years ago because you may not have all the facts about whether or not the signed copy of the bylaws went to all the owners or not. So just a couple of things, just best practices. There really is no law on this topic. So there is no right or wrong way to do this. Basically, a couple of things. If you're doing an amendment to your bylaws, and we have a great cheat sheet on this topic called amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions, but best practices for a bylaw revision would be that a copy, a signed copy of the bylaws is provided to every owner after the um, amendments are passed or if it's amended and restated, giving the amended and restated bylaws to all the owners. That is best practices. It could be placed on the website of the association. It could be sent by email to members in the association. If I had to guess, I bet that when you purchased your condo a year ago, your disclosure package had a copy of those bylaws in it. So likely you already were provided a copy of the amended bylaws question as to whether or not the bylaws have to be signed, I would say it's best practices to do that, but I'm not aware of any requirement that says that it has to actually be signed by like the president and the secretary or the president and the other board members. But again, if I were doing it, best practices would be to have that document signed and then to provide a copy to everybody and have evidence that you provided a copy of it to everybody. Okay, next question, number two, can an HOA board deny a records request for a hard copy of a draft budget document that was presented and shared with a few homeowners at a finance committee meeting. The homeowners were given a copy marked draft and were able to review the document along with the committee members. Okay, so this is a question on records requests. If you're making a records request, a great resource for you. Look at our top 10 cheat sheet. Um, Number 10 talks about what the procedure is to make a records request and what can um, be provided to an owner if they request to see it and what the association is allowed to withhold. So the question here is, can the board deny a draft budget record request? You know, and even if it's a draft, I don't think that the board can deny it because it's a record of the association. It's a draft, but it's a record, a book and record of the association. It's here you indicated that the homeowners were given a copy marked draft and were allowed to review the document along with the committee members. So I think that, that they handled that correctly. 
But if, if a records request is made for a hard copy of it, that would need to be provided in my opinion. Okay, next question, number three. Um, what can residents do if they have board members who stated dollar amounts for a motion during a meeting and then later when asked about it, now state that they did not say it? While a large number of residents heard this, now they refuse to tell residents the amount of any bids received. Transparency behavior like this is why I'm now a candidate for the board. What are the laws, if any, that would require transparency and homeowners' right to know? You know, whenever I'm talking about what makes the best boards, what's the formula for the best boards, or what's the recipe to have a really successful board and a successful community, one thing that is on my at the top of my list is transparency and boards not hiding things. There's nothing to hide. Everybody has a right to see the records. There are a few records that owners cannot see, right? And just hearing something like this, it does concern me as an attorney that practices in this area because there's really no reason for this. Okay, so I guess apparently what's happening here is at a board meeting, there were dollar amounts stated regarding some bids. And then later the board clammed up and doesn't want to tell anybody what the bid pricing was. To me, that does cause members to feel uncertain about transparency and what's really going on at the community. So, you know, my feeling is that that was not the right way to handle it. Um, maybe there's a Zoom recording of the meeting where you can go back and get those numbers. Maybe somebody audio taped it um, and you can go back and get the numbers. So what laws are there that would require transparency and a homeowner right to know? Well, the, the required transparency, something would be making a records request is allowed under Arizona law. And that's a way to hold the board accountable by asking for the records. This was a verbal statement. So um, the only way that you'd be able to get records pertaining to this would be as if the meeting was videotaped or if it was on Zoom, if it was recorded, and then you have a right to make a copy of, um, or you can request a copy of those recordings. You yourself can record it. Arizona law allows recording of videotaping or videotaping meetings um, of the board that are open meetings. Your board may have a policy regarding the procedure to do that. So you may want to check to see, you know, they do and then make sure that you follow whatever their policy is. But so the laws are, are in favor of the owners being able to have information. The ways to get information are the records request. Attending open board meetings is another way to hold the board accountable so that you're there listening videotaping or audio taping board meetings, using Zoom for meetings with the recording function. The open meeting law and the right to see records are, are definitely two things that all boards need to be aware of and be held accountable for transparency. Okay, question number four. Can the property manager require that the only way to respond to a citation notice occur through certified mail only? There is no electronic way to respond. Okay, so great question. There's a citation that's provided to you. So this is like a violation notice and the board requests a certain way to respond. As long as you're getting it back to the board, I would think that that would be sufficient. Um, I'm wondering maybe if there's some confusion on your part because um, there is a law in Arizona that says that if a homeowner receives a violation notification that they can request via certified mail, certain information. I'm wondering maybe if you might be misreading the, the violation letter, maybe the board's just making you aware of that right. In my experience, as long as you're contacting the board at their official address or their official email address, you should be able to respond that way. Now, if the letter tells you to respond to a certain, to the citation in a certain way, I mean, just, I will tell you just so that you're heard on it, do it. Um, I'm not saying that they're acting appropriately. I'm just saying that you should follow their procedure so that you actually get a hearing on the citation. Okay, question number five. Our condo buildings include underground parking structures, at underground parking, structures owned by the association, but individual stalls are deeded to the owners. A resident left his car idling in the garage unattended and locked for 26 hours. Wow, that's a little, very dangerous. Attempts were made to contact him, phone calls, and pounding on the unit door. The area was monitored for safety, concern of the engine overheating and causing a fire, or the release of toxic fumes. Overall concern about putting residents and employees at risk. What actions may or should the board take in an incident such as this, including the right to impose a fine? Well, first of all, you know my team is helping me on this 
I get the questions and they're making notes and there's exclamation points and everybody's worried about this. So first thing my team's talking about is, and I agree with this entirely, is you should have called the fire department to assess the possible hazard. Likely the window would have been broken and they would have turned the car off. Um, in my experience, if we ever see something like this happen. What steps can the board take on this? Hey, I would ask for the homeowner to come for a hearing because it, this really is a dangerous situation. And there could have been toxic poisoning of somebody else. There could have been a fire, like you stated. This You probably have a nuisance provision in your documents. And you know, 99% of associations do have this type of provision. This would qualify as a nuisance for sure, um, or even creating a dangerous condition in the community if you have that type of language in your documents. So I, I definitely am recommending that you send a violation letter, that you threaten to levy a fine, have a hearing with the owner to find out what exactly happened, and then make a decision if you want to actually levy that fine. So notice of the violation through a, a letter, a violation letter, give the owner an opportunity to be heard, and then levy a fine. So I think that's the best way to handle this. Also, many of these garages, it sounds like you have underground parking structure. Uh, many of the garages are required to have a sensor for toxic fumes. So make sure that you have that type of a sensor so that an alarm goes off. Also, there's an automatic fan that goes off to help move the air around and then make sure that you are having that sensor checked on whatever the recommended you know, S-trons are for that to make sure that it's functioning at all times. Okay, next question, number six. Um, I'm on the board of a 40-year-old cooperative. Um, now remember everybody, cooperatives are a little bit different than planning communities and condos. So I just wanna make that distinction right up front. I'm new to the board. We are mostly snowbirds and I'm trying to understand the open meeting law. Um, now remember in a cooperative, you are likely not subject to the open meeting law that applies to condominiums and planned communities. So I just want to make that very clear from the beginning. Example, windstorm occurred recently. If members of the board think it should just say to everybody, there were private homes that had minor damage. These owners were notified. Everything is fine. Do they have to do 48 hours notice, explain the reason for the meeting, time and date, and start the meeting in Arizona to comply with the open meeting law? Again, because you're a cooperative and I haven't seen your documents, but you're telling me you're a cooperative, you're not going to be subject to the open meeting law because cooperatives do not have the same legal definition as a condo or a planned community. So it's likely that you don't have the requirement of the 48 hours notice of the open meeting law that applies to condos and planned communities. However, you may have some special notice requirements in the bylaws for your cooperatives. So you would need to follow those. Obviously, in emergency circumstances, Sometimes it's better just to get the word out and suspend the notice requirements that you may have in your bylaws if it's a true emergency and you're needing to act in a timely manner. Okay, next question, number seven. Our HOA is owner-occupied. No rentals unless they are grandfathered. A current loophole is that a couple of homeowners um, are using is 99.1% ownership. The first homeowner that implemented this thought they could rent when purchasing the property went to a lawyer and the 99.1% was implemented and recorded on the deed. We now have a second homeowner doing the same thing. Both are currently renting to the 1% if it can be called that since they own 1%. How can we legally prevent this as we update our CCNRs? Can we require equal ownership of the people on the deed? Really good question. This started to come up, gosh, maybe two years ago when the real estate market was really booming in Arizona and people were selling like a fractional ownership in homes in Arizona. And so we have successfully written amendments to CCNRs that would prohibit this type of an arrangement where it's like a fractional ownership, 1% in this case, but the other associations that we had, we were seeing like 40 to 60% or 50-50. So this can be done. We've got a great sheet cheat sheet on amending association documents that I'm going to be sharing with you right now. And you can take a look at that, reach out to our firm, and we can help you with an amendment to your CCNRs on that. You probably want to get on that quickly because the more owners that, you know, move to this fractional ownership before we get that amendment passed, you know, we won't be able to do anything about them afterwards. It would be grandfathered. Okay, next question. Our HOA is creating a policy and fine schedule for violations of the association's documents. 
The CCNRs in Section 9 general provisions give the board the authority to impose reasonable fines for violations of the CCNRs and other association documents. The board of directors has the power to create a fine policy or policy and shall provide a copy of such schedule or policy to the owners. Should this section of the CCNRs be cited in amending the existing rules and regulations to include a violation process and a fine schedule? So, I mean, it's probably not necessary, but if you're going to dot your I's and cross your T's, you may want to put in there like pursuant to section nine of the CCNRs, you know, we are implementing this fine schedule, the fine schedule and policy. And so you, you certainly can do that. Remember too, that Arizona law allows associations to find owners for violations of the same, the same language basically as to what your, our section nine of your CCNR says, but I mean, I think it's kind of, it's best practices would be to include that in the rules, but it's it's not necessary. Okay, next question from one of my favorite community managers. Thanks for being here today. Old bylaws require the secretary mail notice to all owners to notify of a board meeting. Is posting on a website and sending an email acceptable notice in this day and age, or are they still required to mail if it says mail? Do they have to amend the documents to all email and website posting instead of U.S. mail? So it depends on how difficult it is to amend your bylaws. I mean, I think I would I would suggest that you get rid of that mail, U.S. mail on requirement just because that's so antiquated. If I had to guess, like you said, they're old bylaws. So best practices would be just take that out of your documents. You know, you can rely on state law which allows you to provide notice of your board meetings by conspicuous posting or any other reasonable means 48 hours in advance. So what I would do is is rely on state law right now and then ultimately work on amending those bylaws to take that provision out. I guess the question that you're asking though is, do we have to mail it? Probably not, because if you're relying on state law, I think that's a good fallback. But regardless, just take that out of your documents because... It's such an antiquated provision and it's expensive to do this and it it just doesn't make sense. So the next time you're amending your bylaws, take that out. Okay, next question, number 10 from a board member. We have an owner applying for a group home for what we've been told is for a few disabled people. Our CCNRs do not prohibit businesses, but these are disabled people and we are concerned, excuse me, our CCNRs do prohibit businesses but these are disabled people and we are concerned that they have rights that may trump the CCNRs that we are not aware of. In general, what rights do HOAs have in prohibiting group homes? And what rights do the group homes and occupants and owners have? We're not even sure this is an issue yet if it is disabled adults that receive their care inside. Any advice on what to look into or what to ask the homeowner or the county for would be appreciated. So we have a great cheat sheet on this topic. It's called Federal Laws for Community Associations. It talks about the Fair Housing Act. Under the Fair Housing Act, an association cannot prohibit against certain protected classes, one of which is uh, people who have a disability. There is a specific exemption in the Fair Housing Act that talks about group homes. And it says that even if your associations prohibit a business, that group homes are something for for the protected classes under the Fair Housing Act are something that the association must allow. And so what I would recommend to you is take a look at our cheat sheet, number one. Number two, reach out to the owner and find out what their intentions are and what type of group home this is going to be. Is this going to be, um, you know, we've seen group homes for a lot of things, group homes for the elderly, group homes for disabled persons, group homes for recovering addicts. And so we want to make sure that whatever they're doing falls into the categories that are protected under the Fair Housing Act that would, you know, limit us from saying you can't do this. So take a look at our cheat sheet. You can also reach out to the county or city that you live in and see if this group home has been registered. They do need to be registered um, with either the city or the county, depending on which geographic location you live in in the Valley. Okay, next question. Um, Number 11 from a board member. Frequently, owners have not paid assessments, accumulated fees, and then request waivers. I understand that requests should be discussed on a case-by-case basis, but our manager and board often want to grant the waivers without investigating the situation. Fees like hard costs, such as lien, small claims, collection letters, 
If these fees are waived, the owner that incurred them does not pay them, but the costs still do get paid by the HOA. So dues paid by other unit owners are used to pay these costs. This doesn't feel fair to the owners that pay assessments on time. What is your advice on waivers? So really good question from a board member. There's about, in most associations, there's about 5% of your owners that don't pay assessments in a timely manner. And as an attorney that practices in this area, we do a lot of collection work for associations. And in fact, you know, I've been seeing a bunch of different cycles here in Arizona since I started my practice in 1996. And I think we're starting to move into a downturn again, based upon the number of collection files that we're seeing and the number of trustee sales and the number of bankruptcies. And so this is a really timely question. So if we have an owner who's not paying, just so you know, that most associations have about 5% of the owners that, that don't pay in a timely manner. Number one, get on these owners quickly, meaning put them into violation status and send a friendly reminder and then you know more serious violation notice and then send it to your attorney to lean and then make a decision about what's the best way to collect the money by looking at the 360 view of their financials, um, which our firm you know does every time we open a collection file. Like, how can we get the money from this person? We look at their credit. We look at um, a number of different factors. Are they employed? Are they upside down on their mortgage? Is this a rental property? Because they should be paying if it's rental property, right? And so I guess it, as we move along and then, you know, we ultimately get the owner to pay or we get to a point where they, they try to cut a deal to get out of it. You know, there's a number of things that we have to look at. Um, is there an extenuating circumstance? Like, does the person, you know, are they elderly? Was there a dementia issue or they forgot to pay? Or is this person just a player and they play this game with everybody? You know, and so I think we have to look at the facts and circumstances on each one. And I will tell you that as the attorney representing associations, we try to never waive these costs that the association incurs that, you know, need to be reimbursed. You know, there are some exceptions to this where like the person is just tanking, right? Like we're just trying to get anything before they lose their property. Um, like maybe they're teetering on bankruptcy, they're upside down on their property, they're unemployed. There are some times where we do have to, you know, make a business decision to waive some of these hard costs just to get something. Otherwise, the homeowners are paying 100% of what this person owes. They're, they're picking up the tab for this person who doesn't pay versus um, only picking up 5 or 10% on some of these small fees that we've waived. So we have to be smart about this. We have to remember that um, we can't let our emotions get in the way on these um, matters in the association. We have to look at this like a business and do what's best for the business. So, but as a matter of principle, hard costs like this, our firm is very reluctant to ever waive those soft costs like late fees, things that we don't budget for. Those would be something that we might be more likely to waive, but not the hard costs. I mean, we don't even waive soft costs in every instance because we have to send a message to the owners that if you don't pay, there are consequences. It's almost like having kids or teenagers, right? You have to set up guidelines and then you have to stick to them. Otherwise, they're going to go right back to the bad behavior again. So we factor all of this in when we are making a decision about whether you know we should recommend to the association to waive something or not waive something. So just know that there's a lot of thought being put into this. And although at times it may not seem fair, Sometimes it's in the best financial interest of the association to have a waiver. Okay, question 12. Is a reserve study required for condominium associations? I've read that an association can use software in lieu of a formal study by a professional um, reserve company. Is that acceptable? So again, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic on reserve funds for community associations. I highly recommend that you take a look at it. We're going to be sharing that link on um, Facebook Live and on um, Zoom today. So in Arizona, a reserve study is not required, whether it's an informal one like you're talking about that the board does on the computer, or if you're using a more formal professional company that has a designation that does reserves for a living. So it's not required in Arizona at this time. A couple of things, though, that you need to know. Under Arizona law, you are required to provide buyers of a copy of the reserve study if you have done one. So you should know that so that buyers can make an informed decision. 
So if you don't have one, obviously the buyers are going to be thinking, oh, this doesn't sound good. They don't even have a reserve study done, you know, and that would be a cause for concern, in my opinion, and maybe a reason why a buyer wouldn't want to buy, would not want to buy in your association. Okay. So then the next question is, can the board do it or the management company do it using these software packages that you can find online? Um, is that acceptable? I guess, how do I say, is it acceptable? It's something, it's a choice. It's not a good choice. I highly recommend that you spend the money to have an expert come in and do a full reserve study. Think about this. This is a planning tool for the future of your association. You want to make sure that you have somebody that actually walks the property, is familiar with your association, is familiar with the needs of the association, can actually determine what the useful life is on these different common elements that the board is required to maintain. Use a professional company that has a designation to do reserve studies because it's setting you up for success. Yes, there's some costs up front, but I guarantee you that the cost of the reserve study, you will get that back time and time and time again because you're making such good decisions on the planning. You know, on the flip side of that, if you are doing it yourself, it's probably not going to be correct. And you're going to end up paying more than you would have paid by hiring the reserve company to do the professional reserve study in the long run. Okay, next question, 13. Is an ADRE, so Arizona Department of Real Estate, complaint against the HOA board or the community's management company or both? Okay, so great, great question. We have a blog that our firm has written on how to effectively handle ADRE petitions. You can also go check out the website, which I think are, this is mentioned in the blog. For the Arizona Department of Real Estate, great way to find it is Googling ADRE and homeowners associations, and it will pop right up in Google. Okay, so under the way that the law is structured, and this is a state statute in Arizona, the ADRE complaint can only be between the owner and the association. The management company cannot be part of that complaint by statute. Okay, next question, um, number 14, what liability do family-related board members have on boards and committees in regards to conflicts of interest? This is a really good question. It's like a, it's like a landmine, right? First of all, I, I really don't recommend that like family members serve on the board together or on committee members together. And the most common family member thing that we see would be like a husband and wife both serving on the board at the same time. Maybe the husband and wife own one unit or maybe they own multiple units. It's just not good because it shifts the balance of power. Same analysis on committees. It's not a good thing because we need to have representation of the entire community. And it's just not something that I recommend. In terms of a conflict of interest, you know, there's nothing under Arizona law that directly pertains to this. And the only conflict of interest statute that's under Arizona law says that if you're going to hire a family member as a board member is going to hire a family member to work for the association, it has to be disclosed an open board meeting before that the board votes on it. So it's really loosey-goosey. So is there liability? A, it's not a good idea, number one. Number two, is there liability? I mean, I don't know. It depends. If they make a bad decision or they're colluding or something, there could be. I've never seen that before. What I have seen is it just turns into a nightmare because owners don't like it, or maybe there's some people on the board who don't like the balance of power on the board. And I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a lawsuit in 27 years on this particular issue, but I've seen a lot of headaches, that's for sure, um, where this is a problem that just creates a lot of problems down the road. So I don't recommend that you do that. Okay. One other thing I'm going to mention is I think it's okay. So let's say you've got the wife on the board and then the husband's on a committee or vice versa. I think that's okay. It's where you're both serving on the same thing. And oftentimes that spouse on the board and then spouse on the committee, it happens because there's not enough talent pool, so to speak, in the community to get people to volunteer. So I'm okay with that. Question number 15, are there any Arizona laws governing HOW reserve funds can, or, or how, excuse me, hello, <laughs> it's in all caps letters. So are there any Arizona laws governing how reserve funds can or cannot be invested? 
So there are not any laws on that, but there are some best practices. Um, You should go with investments that are safe and that are low risk. You'll want to look at if you're putting it into CDs that you're getting, you know, a good rate and that the the bank has a good rating. Um, I know with recently, six months ago, eight months ago, we saw a number of banks having problems and the federal government stepping in to help them. So you want to make sure that the bank has a good rating and you want to look at how long you want the CD to be because you may have needs for the money. Um, And if you take the money out too soon, you'll get penalized under it. Key thing on reserve funds is make sure that whatever investments you're doing are safe. Most associations are just doing CDs. There are no laws, again, that govern this. Okay, question number 16. What mailings to homeowners have to go certified mail? Violations, late notices, annual meetings? Really good question. Um, This person is on the board. Check your bylaws to see what they say. You know, I really have never seen an association that requires mailings to homeowners to be by certified mail. So that's not something that we see that's common. And Arizona law does not require that either. Okay, question number 17 from a board member. When the HOA board sends the first violation letter, the courtesy letter for a CCNR violation, can it be sent from the board without the letter, including the name and personal information of the individual who is reporting the violation? Okay, so this question again is from a board member. So when you're sending a violation letter, and in this case, you're saying a courtesy, like so the first letter, can it be sent by the board and not include the person who saw the violation? Like let's say if it's the neighbor or maybe another individual in the community. In most circumstances, like let's say an owner complains about something, right? Like, hey, my neighbor put up this shed that's in violation of the documents. In most circumstances, the manager is going to go out and take a look at it. So the manager is going to be the person or the violations manager is going to be the person that reviews it. So their name would be the name of the person that witnessed the violation. We do recommend that the violation letter contain all the information that's required under the law so that we provide to the owner what the violation is, right? And who witnessed it and what the penalties are and what the procedure is to ask for hearing if there is a threat of a fine, et cetera. You don't have to put that in the first letter if you don't want to, but it is recommended. Why is it recommended? Because if the owner responds back to that violation letter via certified mail asking for information about the violation, then we are required to provide that. So I like doing it up front. So we just pick that box, it's done. So even if the homeowner asks by certified mail to have this information, we can say, hey, we already provided it to you in the first letter. Okay, next question, number 18. If an association has a justice court pending lawsuit on a homeowner and a special assessment fee have been added to their outstanding debt, are these fees something the attorney can include in the justice court lawsuit? Yes, but the complaint for the justice court lawsuit should be, you know, either amended to include the special assessment. That would be the proper way to do it. It wasn't included initially in the initial complaint. It can be done. You know, I would recommend that um, you do the amendment to the complaint if it's already pending and then it's no big deal. Um, You can amend the case as a matter of course, before the lawsuit is filed under the rules of civil procedure, or if it's already been filed and served, um, then you have to get permission from either the other side, meaning the defendant homeowner, or from the court to amend it, but that's readily granted. Now, one thing, I mean, if you're like on the doorstep of a trial, like let's say you're two weeks out from a trial, date, it's not going to be looked real favorably by the judge to go amending the complaint to include that. So probably what I would recommend if you were in that case, in that type of a case would be to postpone the, the trial, amend it, and then give the owner the opportunity to process it and have a little time to allow the court to amend the complaint and then um, do a new disclosure statement. And then by the time the trial comes around, then it should be fine to um, have that count included in the complaint and then receive it as part of this as part of the judgment. Okay, question number 19. Our CCNR say 6.5 special assessments the association may levy against each lot, which is then subject to assessment in any assessment period, a special assessment for the purpose of defraying in whole or in part 
the cost of any construction, repair, or replacement of an improvement upon the common area, including fixtures and personal property related thereto, provided that any special assessment shall have the assent of two-thirds of the votes entitled to be cast by members who are voting in person or by proxy at a meeting duly called for such purpose. Do we really need to amend our CCNRs? I guess here's my question. So this is a pretty standard provision in your CCNRs for special assessment. So basically what it says is, you know, you can levy a special assessment for construction, repair, or replacement of an improvement on the common areas. But you have to have two-thirds of the votes entitled to be cast by members who are voting in person or proxy at a meeting for such purpose. Now, that doesn't mean two-thirds of all owners. It just means two-thirds of however many people show up as long as you have a quorum. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. Now, if you want to do a special assessment to fund your reserves, or you want to do a special assessment for some purpose other than construction, repair, or replacement of an improvement on the common areas, then you may need to amend the CCNRs. Otherwise, to include that language. But otherwise, I think this is pretty standard language. Question number 20, and it looks like we have about 33 questions. So we're more than half the way through. Okay, the next question is from a board member. There is not a valid contract with the current management company who is collecting HOA dues and paying bills. The board wants to change management companies now. Can the board declare this an emergency and vote by email on this and ratify the change at the next board meeting? I really would advise against doing this for a number of reasons. Okay, so let's break this down. First, it doesn't appear that there's a contract with the management company, right? So you you want to fire them. I think best practices, even though there is no contract, is to give 30 days notice so that there can be a timely and successful transition between the old management company that you're firing and the new management company. Now, obviously, if it's a situation like where the management company is stealing money and you need to make a shift right away, that's a different situation, Okay. But assuming that there isn't that type of a situation, you know, what I would suggest would be giving 30 days notice and just doing it by the book, follow the open meeting law. This is something that should be done in an open board meeting. And um, just try to be really professional. Just be honest with the management company and say, it's not working out. As you know, we don't have a contract. So what we are, would like to do is do a 30-day termination. Um, and we're going to be having a meeting to vote to terminate you and to vote to hire a new management company. And I just want to give you a heads up before that. And then properly notice the meeting and fire one and hire one. And so if there is a true emergency, like I said, like the management company is stealing money or there's something that is so urgent that you cannot wait 48 hours. And I can't imagine very many instances where this would come into play, truthfully. <laughs> so putting that caveat on there so you don't think that I'm recommending this, I'm not, then you could have the emergency board meeting and vote by, um, to ratify the change by email and then um, vote on the change at the very next, formally vote on it at the next board meeting. But I'm not recommending that. I am recommending that you do the right thing and have an open meeting after giving 48 hours notice to terminate and then hire the new management company. Okay, next question, number 21. Which is better for policy procedures and records request? A simple written policy procedure for board motion and approval to minutes or written as a board resolution to be voted on and approved in the minutes of the association? I just like this type of thing in the minutes. I, I Resolutions are a thing of the past. Please don't use those. Now what you should be doing is put it in the minutes. The minutes are the official record of what happened that will stay with the corporation forever. It's not like a resolution that could get misfiled. And so what I would recommend is putting everything in the meeting minutes, discussing everything in the, in the meeting and putting it in the minutes. Okay, um, next question, number 22. Our HOA is discussing raising the assessments. My question is, after the vote, what is the proper or legal way to notify the homeowners of the increase and in what time frame? Our dues are due on 1-1-2024. So great question from an owner. As a board, you should map this out, right? So if you are going to raise your assessments, what's the procedure in your CCNRs? Can the board raise it? If so, then maybe you're doing this after looking at the budget and determining that you need to increase it because expenses of the association have gone up. You're going to need good justification because people are not always happy when they hear about an increase. So you want to have that budget to back you up. You know, what's the proper way to notify owners? 
you know, most associations are notifying their owners of increases 30 days, 60 days before the increase comes effective. Sometimes in desperate situations, it's less than 30 days, but 30 days is kind of a good rule of thumb. Um, next question, number 23. We have two previous board members, board of directors with no homeowner association background. The president made most decisions, had many resignations and board removals. Last two boards are served with four boards, four board of directors, bylaws, state three or five. Okay, so they've got an even number and they should have had an odd number. Annual meeting is coming up. Old boards prepared co-owners meeting to present board roles and responsibilities, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, analysis for the last two boards, and HOA policies and procedures manual before the annual meeting. What do you recommend? My goodness, that is a difficult question. (laughs) I don't even try to understand what the question is. Okay, so let's break it down. Your association has problems, okay? (laughs) Obviously, I'm looking at this. You've got two boards that didn't have any experience, right? And it wasn't being run well because the president was running it like an oligarchy, right? And that caused resignations and board removal petitions. Drama, drama, right? Not good. The last two boards that you've had had only four board members when they should have had an odd number of board members under your documents. Sometimes that happens. Always best to try your best to get that to the odd number if your bylaws require that. But if you don't have a pulse that wants to be on the board... For somebody that wants to be on the board, sometimes that can be difficult. Okay, annual meetings coming up. Apparently, these old boards who had some issues, they came up with all these different board roles and threat legal analysis, et cetera, and a policies and procedures manual. You know, what do I recommend? I recommend that your board get a good lawyer to help you, <laughs> frankly, because you have a lot of issues out there. Just because the board prior board put in place a policy and procedures manual doesn't mean that the new board can't undo it. You know, when the new board gets seated, let's come, let's have our firm come in and do a boot camp for you because you've got issues. And if I, if I had to guess these issues are costing you a lot of money and a lot of angst and there's dysfunction and that causes a lot of anxiety for the board and for the homeowners in the community. So let's bring in an expert and, um, Let's talk through what the issues are and let's get a game plan to get you on the right track going forward. Okay, question number 24. A property manager told a homeowner a few years ago that a proposal for improving the clubhouse wasn't the board's decision to make, but was the entire community's decision. What determines if a decision is to be made by the board compared to a decision made by the community? How would we get the community to decide on something like this? By mailed ballots? Okay, great question. Actually, my association is going through this right now and I'm on the board. Um, and I've helped many other boards over the past 27 years with the same problem. So, okay, so you want to improve something in your community, right? Maybe it's you want to put up a children's playground or you want to renovate the pool or you want to update the clubhouse. Who makes a decision on that? That's a really tricky question. The board ultimately makes a decision. Their vote is the final decision, frankly. But there are things that should be done. So number one, the board needs to get input from the owners on whatever they're proposing. Number two, the there might be a funding issue. So you might need to get the vote of the owners if you need the funding to implement the change to the clubhouse or any large capital expenditures. You may not, but you may need their vote. And the only way you're going to get their vote is if you're proposing something that they want because they're not going to pay a special assessment for something they don't want, trust me. So it's kind of sticky in that even though the property manager said to you know your association a few, few years ago, one thing that how the clubhouse is improved isn't a board decision. Well, actually it, it is because you elect the board to make decisions like that. But there might be spending limitations in the documents that require a vote of the membership. There might be funding requirements that, you know, we've got to do a special assessment. So we need a vote of the membership. And very important is the board should be providing information and seeking input from the owners on any big decisions like this that are going to cost, you know, over $100,000 or whatever, 50 grand, it depends on how much money you have in your association's coffers and how large the project is. So the board should be asking for input regardless. 
And if you had to have a vote on something like this, you know, you need to get your attorney involved. And typically you do use absentee ballots in conjunction with a meeting. If It's like a special assessment vote. It just depends on what your documents state. Let's see. The next question is, our board is considering recording our Zoom board meetings. Can we place restrictions on our recordings that they may not be posted to social media or YouTube? We don't restrict people from making their own recordings of the Zoom meetings and wouldn't be changing that part. Anything else related to recording meetings that we should be aware of? Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet called Arizona's Open Meeting Law and Rules for Recording Association Meetings. We also have another cheat sheet on tips on conducting virtual meetings that I would suggest that you take a peek at. A couple thoughts. You certainly could pass a rule as a board stating that these recordings, you know, you're entitled to make a copy, request a copy of this, but you can't post this on social media and YouTube because there's confidential information regarding our association. We don't want that. I think that's a fair rule for you to do. Now, can you control that? Can you enforce that? It might be difficult because, you know, maybe this YouTube channel is private, so you won't even know about it, but you could pass a rule for that. No problem. Take a peek at our cheat sheet on our suggestions on recording meetings. Um, that might be helpful for you as you navigate this process. Okay, next question, number 26. How difficult is it to get rid of unscrupulous board members? And what is the procedure? Okay, so we have a cheat sheet that talks about removing board members from office. It's actually um, number six on our top 10 things you need to know about community association law. So that is just a great guide for you on how to navigate that process. Um, if you want to get rid of a board member, what's the best way to do it? Obviously, follow the law. There's a whole procedure that's outlined based on the size of your association in terms of how many people you need to sign the petition, et cetera. I really would recommend that whatever the group is that wants to get rid of the board, get your own attorney. Because if you're dealing with an unscrupulous board, chances are they're going to fight you tooth and nail to try to get rid of them. And so you want to make sure that you have competent, aggressive legal representation to help you with that. And I represent, our firm represents associations. And just so you know, if we ever have an inkling of a feeling that the board that we're working with is being unscrupulous, we don't work with them anymore. That's a policy of our firm. If it smells bad, we are writing a letter saying we don't agree with the direction the board's taking and we're out. But we're not going to be on the other side of this. But what I will tell you is that you may not have the same type of legal representation representing that unscrupulous board, and they may be ready to fight too. So I want to make sure that if you're in that situation, that you have a great lawyer helping your group. And it's not that difficult. If you have enough people in your community that are upset about how things are going, and you've had a great grassroots efforts to get everybody on board that, hey, this board needs to go, then the best suggestion I can have for you is bring in an attorney to help you because there are going to be issues. They are going to push back. And you want to make sure that you have a good person there to help navigate that process with you. If you want some suggestions on attorneys that will help owners with this process, reach out to me directly. On my email, you can reach me through our webpage of our firm at mulcahylawfirm.com and I'll get you the right person to help you. Okay, next question, number 27. We are trying to streamline monthly assessment statements to owners who make them easier to understand and to follow. Currently, we show activity for four months and we'd like to include the current amount due on them and nothing else. Do you know of a rule, law, statute, or something else that requires us to provide to put more than the current amount due on the statement we're sending. You know, I'd have to look at the law on that. I think you do have to give them a full accounting based upon the way that that law, there was a law that was passed maybe six years ago. And so I do believe you have to give them an accounting of any amounts that are due. You know, I'd have to look at the specific language of that to advise you. You're one of my clients. So you may want to reach out to me um, to do a deeper dive on this or maybe email me after this today and I can look it up for you for free. But I'm cautious on saying that you can just send out a bill because basically that's what you're doing. You're sending a bill for that month or that quarter or whatever. And I think that the law does require a more detailed statement for those who owe money. You may need to actually print out the accounting. So circle back to me on that and I'll pull the statute. We can look at it on the email this afternoon. 
Question number 28. This is from a board member. We have a homeowner who has lived in a home for 26 years. They have installed a tile and fire pit on the side of the house with architectural approval. A new homeowner bought a home next door. The new owner feels they have rights to a zero lot line easement that includes side yard tile and fire pit. We asked for a community manager to obtain a legal opinion for us. The law firm's opinion was that there is a zero lot line easement beside the house, even though the architectural committee has never acknowledged a zero lot line easement and approved the submittals to install the tile and the fire pit. Thoughts? This is a sticky wicket. Usually tile is something that's permanent. And I don't know if the fire pit's permanent or if it's just one of those ones that can be moved. And I also don't know how long this has been there. You just said that it was installed, but I don't know how long ago. So if it's been there for more than three years, we're probably unable to enforce this by telling them they have to move it. But I'd have to look at this. I have to look at this on many levels. Like, and I would want to do my own independent evaluation. Is the place where these items are located? Is it that owner's property that owns the fire pit and is installed the tile? And where exactly is the lot line? And is this on common areas or is this on the other owner's property? So I'd have to look at a lot of different issues. And I think you really should get a second opinion on this because I'm not sure that the opinion that you got is right. Okay, question number 29. It looks like, I'm gonna just do a quick check. Looks like we have 33 questions. So we have five more to go. Okay, the board of directors has from time to time recorded open meetings conducted by a Zoom. The purpose of the recordings was to ensure accurate minutes. If a member requests and receives a copy of the video recording, can the member's use be restricted so as to preclude posting or otherwise making it available on the internet? Are there other member restrictions that may apply? It's so infrequent that we get, like I'm, I'm gonna call this like a curveball question twice in the same presentation. So this must be like an issue that's popping up more and more. Okay, so your board's recording a Zoom meeting, right? It's recorded. And you're wondering again, like we talked about before, can we prevent owners who get the recording to post it or make it available on the internet? So same analysis as I talked about a few minutes ago, basically the board can pass rules. We have a cheat sheet on recording open meetings and recording open meetings. So the board can pass a rule, but it's going to be difficult to enforce just FYI, because we may not be able to find it on the internet if they do post it, but you, you know, you certainly could pass a rule stating something like that, but it might be difficult to enforce. Okay. Question 30. What is the highest amount we may legally charge as late fees and or interest on delinquent assessments? Okay. So separate analysis for condos and planned communities. Um, I happen to know that this particular question is from a condo because you're one of my clients and I recognize the name. The condominium act, well, first look at what do your CCNR say in a condo? What does it say about late fees? Does it put a dollar amount on it? Does it put a percentage on it? You know, when can you charge it? These are all really important questions because the condo act doesn't give us any direction other than saying you can charge a late fee. Same thing on interest. Do your documents allow you to charge interest? If they don't, then I would not charge interest. So that's the condominium analysis. Now, I know the question, the follow-up question I'm going to get on this is, well, how much can we charge for late fees if our CCNRs for a condo don't put a cap on it? I would be reasonable and follow what the Planned Communities Act says, and that is going to be $15 or 10% of the assessment, whichever is greater. Okay, next question, number 31. A homeowner is selling her property privately with no title company to avoid HOA ARB fines and legal fees. Can she do this? Yes, we always don't like seeing something like this. Okay, so basically they're doing a sale of the property. They're selling it without title insurance because no title company is being used. So it's not going to be a valid warranty deed because it won't be any of the warranties that are normally given in a deed that all liens have been extinguished, et cetera. So I guess what you want to do is look at your CCNRs because in most circumstances, the buyer who gets a property this way by quick claim deed, they inherit the problems that come with the property. So if you have fines and legal fees on the ledger for this particular owner, if they're doing it outside of a title company by quick claim deed, 
the buyer is likely going to be inheriting all of these and now they're going to be their obligation. Now, there are some limited times when the CCNRs don't allow that debt to cross over to the new owner, but more likely than not, it will. So we want to check your CCNRs. And um, if it happens, you definitely want to get legal advice from our firm to help you navigate this process. Okay, last two questions. During the summer months, when board members are not always in Arizona, the board has Zoom meetings only so that everyone can participate. Proper notice is provided to all residents. Does it matter which state or country the Zoom meeting is started? This is a pandemic question, right? So, I mean, I guess no, but you should have one person in Arizona whereby if, you know, somebody that's doing the Zoom in Arizona, so if somebody says, hey, I want to attend the meeting in person, that they would be able to go to that Arizona location and attend the meeting by Zoom. Doesn't make sense, but that's what the law says. The law says that all meetings of the board must be conducted in Arizona. So you've got to have one presence in Arizona. So what do you do if your whole board is scattered around the country in the summer and there's no body in Arizona to be the focal point for the meeting being held in Arizona? Just have your attorney's office offer that if anybody wants to come to the Arizona Zoom location, that they can pop into our conference room and, and listen to the meeting on Zoom. And I'm sure our firm would do that for free for you. So just keep that in your back pocket as an option. If you have owners that are saying, uh, 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 the Arizona law says that there has to be a meeting held in Arizona. That's the workaround on that. Okay, last question. Um, this is a follow-up to the Arizona Department of Real Estate question that we had earlier in the presentation. So how does one file a complaint against the management company if... The law doesn't allow us to use the Arizona Department of Real Estate to handle our disputes at the management company. Management companies are not regulated by the state of Arizona. That is just not something that, that happens right now. So the state isn't going to get involved in that. The best way to handle an issue with the management company, if you have it, would be to sue them. But you got to remember, you have to have privity of contract. And the management company has a contract with the board. So if there is an issue, you know, the board sues the management company if there's a violation of the management company's contract, right? If an owner has an issue with the management company, you should make that complaint to the board, right? So if you're saying the management company is not returning my calls, that complaint should go to the board. Or the management company made a mistake on my ledger. That's really a board issue because the board's hiring the management company to do the ledger. So if you know there's a miscalculation or there's a misapplication of payment or whatever, you can bring it to the board's attention. If it's not fixed, then you can go to the ADRE and have an issue with the board on that because ultimately that's a board issue. Okay, that's it for our questions for today. We made great time. We did all the questions in an hour and six minutes. At one point in this first Fridays, we had over 60 people um, here on Facebook Live and on Zoom. So thanks so much for being here today. Just some quick conclusion remarks. Thank you for being here today. Don't forget to join us for our 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy, our September class. Um, we've got a lot of topics for this class. It's going to be a great class. It's September 19th, 2023, uh, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. The topic for this class is Money Matters creating a budget, which everybody should be working on right about now for your 2024 um, budget, um, how to read financials for an association. I promise I won't make it boring. And just so that you can protect yourself so that you make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a board member to oversee the financials. And if you're a homeowner, so that you can look at financials and say, hey, wait a minute here, something doesn't look right. And then last but not least, Scary topic, but a must topic is how to prevent theft and fraud of association funds. So if you're serving on your board, what are the warning signs that, hey, something's not right here? Um, maybe the management company isn't handling things properly. Um, also, if you're a homeowner and you're wondering, gosh, things don't seem right with our finances for the association, I'm going to tell you the warning signs and what you can do if you do find that there is some fraud and embezzlement in your association. So it's going to be a great class talking about money. And then don't forget that our next live virtual First Friday event will be Friday, October 6th. Lastly, I do end the presentation often asking for this. Um, we really enjoy teaching these classes and providing this free service of First Fridays 
it's a way for us to get through a lot of questions for boards that may not have the finances to get these questions answered um, by an attorney and be charged for them. So I'm asking, please, that we can get some feedback from you. And one way that you can do that would be by giving us a Google review. Um, and let us know how you like this First Friday format, if there's anything we could do better or anything how you'd like to see it changed. And so we're sharing the link right now in the chat on how you can leave a review. I genuinely would appreciate receiving the reviews because when we're teaching a class like this, I don't get a lot of feedback from you. So it's important that we get that feedback. Um, we're always happy to get feedback um, from our customers and also from those of you who are just our friends on Facebook Live and Zoom. And we want to continue to improve our service and provide you with content that will be helpful to you. So please, I encourage you to take time and give us a Google review when you have a chance or even right now, do it now. So thanks everybody for being here today. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Happy Labor Day. Thank you to my entire team who is amazing and awesome, especially Morgan, who is here with me right here in the room, helping me um, with all of these live presentations we do and my entire team at Mulcahy Law Firm. I'm very appreciative of you. And I'm glad that we have a day to celebrate how hard all of us work. So. Happy Labor Day, everybody. Take care and have a great long weekend. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 